0: Lord, we pray for all the unspoken needs that are represented here. All of us are needy in many ways, in some cases even unaware of particularly spiritual needs, but we would pray that you would, in fact, continue to refine us and uh, teach us and minister to us as we know you continually do in unseen ways, sometimes evident ways. We just praise you for those as well. This morning, as we look into your word, that it will come alive to us as it is intended, that we might be illumined to understand what what you have for each of us individually this morning, and in that, that we may be better equipped to reach a lost world. You might remind us of the principles that we learn when we are encountering those that need either exhortation or perhaps introduction to you and we desire that uh, we be lights in a dark world so we pray all these things in jesus name amen so happy father's day to all you all who are
1: fathers and all of you who had a father
0: so that includes everybody right that
1: includes everybody and everybody who has a heavenly father so that's everybody that's everybody
0: great Well, this morning, we want to get back into the book of Romans. And last time I gave you an overview or something of a review of chapters 1 through 7. And this morning we'll get back to our sentence-by-sentence exposition. We mentioned Paul's writing to a particular group of people. In fact, several churches. It's in the plural when he addresses them in chapter 1. And we have indications at the conclusion that some of them were house churches, probably smaller than what we are here gathered. Individual bodies that met to worship the Lord, study his word, encourage one another, pray for the lost community of the city of Rome. So some of the things in Rome that we saw, i have got some new photographs. I think this is an old one. Now, that wasn't there when Paul was there, but that was there in the first century. It commemorates the destruction of not only the temple in Israel, but the entire nation, the Titus. We were able to see it. I mentioned the Mamertine prison. Is that spelled correctly? I pointed it out to a few of you that were kind of in the back of the group. But most of you, I don't know where you were at that point. Remember, it was raining, and we didn't have time to see everything, and we were kind of distracted by the rain. But in the background, further in the back there is the Temple of Saturn. Remember that? You saw that in the distance as well. So it's very close there. In fact, just below the tip of the arrow is a little, not a sign, but lettering that identifies it as the Mamertine prison. That's where Paul basically by tradition at least, spent his last days. Now, this is the second imprisonment. This is not the one that's recorded in the book of Acts, but later. He refers to it in Second Timothy and, in fact, anticipates his death, essentially. And perhaps that's where he spent the last days. And if you remember, this is on the walkway leaving the... Uh, Roman Forum. Do you remember that spot? And if you looked in that direction, you would have been able to see it. In fact, that,
2: awesome, yep. is that the cross
0: on it? Yeah, and it's probably lower down below, but the structure that you see is much later. <coughs> much later. Obviously, a place where persecution took place. Church in the first century was persecuted, particularly after Paul writes the Book of Romans. He writes the Book of Romans in the third missionary journey. And there's the Arch of Titus at the top of the slide there, give you a perspective. So Paul is writing to believers, and there are believers in Rome today. Some of them we some brought back very to Elk. <laughs> some of them we brought back with us, and some of them are even here. So anyway, uh, Paul is writing to believers not much different than, as was mentioned our condition in terms of spiritual things and in terms of our nature and even in terms of some things that we experience here and now today. So we're looking at somewhat the heart of the book of Romans. We've looked at portion that deals with Paul showing that all humanity has a need and stands condemned before a holy God. The solution to that is justification, a theological term that Paul uses, so we define that. Includes the forgiveness of sins, a negative. In fact, where's Linda, our mathematician? But he doesn't leave us at zero, she always says. There's also a positive to justification. Justification includes the declaring of righteousness. So we are given a standing before God in complete righteousness. Now, We're not granted righteousness. That's a slow process that we call sanctification, where we grow to be more and more Christ-like. And in that growth, we are conformed more and more to his image, and that's the passage that we are in. In fact, in the center of it, we're in chapter 7. So after justification, we have sanctification that has three parts. We've seen several of the principles. I reviewed them last week chapter 6, principles continue, but the emphasis shifts from principles to problems that we will encounter in growing as believers. We're going to deal with one of them in the passage that we're looking at this morning. And after he lays out these problems, he gives the solution, and using P to alliterate, there's power available to overcome not only the problems but all of the issues in spiritual growth. So we've looked at the principles. We're in the middle of looking at the problems. First one is, and this is a natural tendency, not only in the first century, not only was it a natural tendency amongst converts from Judaism in terms of the Mosaic law, this was certainly the main issue all the way going back, if you remember in the book of Acts, this was a problem that the church had very early. And in Acts chapter 15, they had to assemble a church council to deal with the issue. Uh, what's the relationship between a new believer or an old believer and the law? What's the relationship between a believer, whether Jewish or non-Jewish, and the Mosaic Law. So he's dealing with that in chapter 7. That was Acts 15 or 17? Acts 15, Jerusalem Council. So all the way back to then, in fact, even before that, because that's the reason they had the council, is to resolve this issue. What do we do now? Now that we're getting these Gentiles coming into the body of Christ, are we to circumcise them? Are we to make them obey the law? What's this relationship But things don't change, even over 2,000 years, we still have a problem with the issue of law. And in fact, I'd like to start the whole study dealing with distortions of the law that you will recognize that exist within the church and in and outside of the church today. So we'll deal with that. And if you notice on your outline sheet, I've got an outline within an outline. Sometimes I put an outline within the passage or exegetical outline. But the issue is that in dealing with sanctification, the law cannot sanctify. There's no power available. God did not build anything into the law that is capable of sanctifying us. Even though our nature and our inclination is to try to go back to the law. And I'll give you some ways that we try to do that in our culture. In uh, the first century, it was a matter of the Jews imposing the Mosaic law on the Gentiles. And the Jerusalem council said, no, that's not what we are to do. And Romans chapter 6 explained why that that is not the case. So we'll remind you of that as well. So the law cannot sanctify, verses 1 through 12, because we're released from the law. Now, this is a very important concept. You need to keep in mind what we looked at in chapter 6, and even before that, we have been released. Paul uses an analogy of marriage. When one of the marriage partners dies, then that essentially dissolves the marriage, and that frees the surviving partner, It frees them. If they want to remarry, they can commit to a new spouse, or they may remain single. The analogy that Paul makes is, we have experienced a death in Christ, chapter 6. When Christ died on the cross, and we received Christ, it's the same as if we died on the cross with Christ, Now, he didn't die for our sins, but a real death, a real identification. Paul uses the word baptism. So we had to kind of explain that because we have a lot of confusing ideas in our culture, what that means. But essentially, it's uniting with Christ, joining, identifying, so that when he died on the cross, it was as if we died with him. And not only that, we were buried with him, Romans 6 says as well, and we were raised with Christ. And that baptism joins us through the Holy Spirit to Christ in an intimate union. So we died, and in that death, we died to sin. We also died to the law. We're no longer under law, and now we are married to another. We have a new relationship with Christ. So that's why he uses that marriage analogy in verses 1 through 6. So we've been released. But, and I should have changed this because I changed it on the outline. He's going to give us, in this context, and give the proper view of the law. It's probably a better description of verses 7 through 11. So you might change that. I think it's changed on your outline sheet anyway. The proper view of the law. I think he's going to give a different view of, because there's a distorted idea concerning the law, and he's correcting that. So I've laid out the negative there, and the more I think about it, the more I think I need to put the positive on there, the proper view of law. So he raises the issue of law in 7, verse 7, at least the first half of it, and that leads us into this issue of the law. If we've been released from the law, we died to sin, and now we died to law, And he keeps talking about law and sin. And when uh, we were aware of the law, that made us aware of sin. And he talks about justification is apart from the law by grace through faith or through through grace by faith. We enter into that relationship not by law. So all the way up to now, we've kind of had a negative impression about law. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, you and I as believers during the life of Christ, Christ had the most conflict with whom? The The most avid observers of the law. So I think we as believers often come away with the impression there must be something wrong with the law. And then if that's not enough, then we have all these associated misunderstanding concerning what is the nature of the law, and what Paul is doing in this passage is giving a proper view or proper perspective, proper understanding of the law. And before we get into the details, let me lay out some of the confusion that exists among the church concerning law in general and the Mosaic law in specific. There is what is called antinomianism. Now it's in your Oh, it's on your outline. Antinomianism, as the word indicates, break it down, and somebody break it down for me. Anti is what? Yes. Against. usually yes. means like yes. name. Okay, against something, and what's nomianism or nomas? to do with name, name. No, no, no. no
3: nomas is, yeah. is law. Yep.
0: The word nomas is law. Remember we did a word study on it? So anti-lawism is a, an approach or a belief system that negates or tries to do away with or undermines or gets rid of law. Now, in the Christian viewpoint, some take the writings of Paul. In fact, Paul was accused of antinomianism. The word is not used in uh, the book of Acts. But basically, what was the accusation when he was arrested? Um, doing away with the the law. Yeah, he was basically accused of antinomianism. In other words, away from the law. Now, the way it creeps into the church is a misunderstanding of what Paul has said. We're no longer under law and all of the things that he said so far. In other words, is the law somehow tainted with sin? Is there a problem with the law? God has done away with it. It must be bad. So you have the attitude, well, to be free, you have to get rid of law. That's antinomianism. That's unbiblical. Okay? Now the other extreme is legalism. That's the other extreme. And this is prevalent in the church today as well. And you can summarize legalism, true legalism, is not putting the law in a high position as such, but using the law In order to, in some way, please God. In other words, doing all these things in order to gain favor before God. And just as there's nothing that we can do, there is no righteous act. In fact, our acts of righteousness are like filthy rags. There's no righteous act that we can do that earns us salvation. So also, what the point that Paul is making, there are no righteous acts that we can do that's going to sanctify us as well. It's all by faith, and it's through a new means. It's by grace as well. We're going to see that as we get further into the passage. So we don't use the law. We don't turn Christianity now into a set of do's and don'ts that uh, we do the minimum of them, and now we can check each box off. Okay, I've done this. I have a list of five things. If I do all these five things, God is going to be pleased. Well, what about the 613 other commandments in the Old Testament? And what about all of the hundreds of commandments in the New Testament? You have all the boxes checked. Well, we fall short. So legalism leads us to frustration and leads us to a point of, what Paul's going to say at the end of Romans seven? Oh, wretched man that I am! I can't, can't do anything to please God, and that's true. But that's not the means that He has designed for us to be sanctified. Maddie, okay, just one thing.
3: so you're right. I think legalism has the possibility to lead us to frustration, mm-hmm. or it has the possibility to lead us the to pride, to hypocrisy,
0: or and pr- yeah, pride. and mm-hmm. pride exactly. exactly. So
3: the Pharisees. Um, made all of these rules, but then they found loopholes, which is what Jesus Mm -hmm. really nailed them
0: on. Exactly. Very good.
3: Right. So we have two extremes that we can go to.
0: With legalism. With
3: legalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Very good. I appreciate Maddie because she she was born in Berea and has moved to Albuquerque. (laughs) (laughs) Legalism. I want you to know that I earned 40 more brownie points last week than you did. Oh, she did, huh? Yeah. Okay, so there's legalism. The third one, you, you may not have heard of, but I mention it because in some circles and in some ways, the unbelieving culture uses this against Christianity because of some that have led in this somewhat of a movement. theonymism. anyone heard of that? Theonomy, theonomism, people that believe that we need to bring the kingdom now and by yeah, obeying dominion
2: theology.
0: theology. Dominion theology uh, is kind of an offshoot of it, but theonomy per se is isolated to a few very conservative believers, by the way, that believe, as Bill is mentioning, that the Mosaic law obviously is inspired and inerrant and uh, universal and applicable today, and that governments should impose this on society. So believers should be working through legislatures, etc., lawmakers, to include mosaic stipulations in the laws of our culture. That's theonomism. Now you can break it down as well. Theos is what? God, God. So has to do with God or theology or theological issues, and we have namas again. So God's law imposed upon culture, theonomy. And there's a few names. I don't know if you've ever heard of Rush Dooney, R.J. Rush Dooney. He's somewhat the father of this idea. And some people accuse the moral majority. Remember that in the past? of uh, being theonomistic, I guess you could say. I think it's a misperception and a false accusation, but some in the culture have associated with some of these extremes, and this is an extreme view, with Christianity more broadly. So seems I just that. want to make you aware of theonomism.
1: seems that whenever Christians speak out against something, immediately you're accused of that. Yes. Right? Whether it's abortion, whether it's a mm-hmm. gender issue.
0: Right. Whether, Don't impose your morality on me. Right. There yes. you go. Mm-hmm.
1: Or another way to look at it would be Sharia law.
0: Yes, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. the other side. <laughs> right. <laughs> when, like on
2: antinomianism against the law, like there's a moral law, there's a ceremonial law. How, how
0: do you shift that? We're going to try and sort that out. Very okay. good question. Yeah, we're going to try and sort that out. I don't know how successful, you'll have to tell me, but okay. I'm just laying out the confusion first before we try to answer the issue. There's Christian distortions as well. Now, I would look at the other ones in in a broader way in terms of culture itself. There are antinomians outside of the church. There are legalists outside of the believing body, at least religious people. And theonomists, there are some unbelievers that would support that idea as well. Interesting. But there are Christian distortions that include all of those, all of the above, as I've already illustrated to some to some extent. So there are some that say, well, we're not under law, so you can do away with the Mosaic law. In fact, a well-known guess you'd have to classify him as a Bible teacher or at least a pastor, that unfortunately some in this church are following, I'm. you want me to name name names, names. I I should name names?
3: Yeah, you should name names.
0: Oh, okay. (laughs) Andy Stanley. In fact, I've got uh, an article I passed out several months ago if you're interested in it. It's a critique of his latest book, or I don't know if it's his latest, but... A prominent book where he essentially advocates tearing out the Old Testament from your Bible. Now, not in exactly those words, but that's the essence of what he is basically teaching. We're under grace. We're not under law. Get rid of law. Get rid of the Old Testament and focus on what we have in Christ now, etc. That's what he proposes in his book.
3: And that possibly could be an outworking of her dispensationalism. Could be. Where we're in the dispensation of grace now, and Mm -hmm. the Old Testament represents the dispensation of law, therefore the Old Testament is unnecessary. But he forgets right, that the early church, their scriptures were
0: the the Old Old Testament. Testament. Yeah, and not only that, but he forgets what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 7, the passage that we're in today. In fact, since Matty brings that up, look at verse 12. This is kind of the conclusion of the, of the paragraph. Somebody read verse 12.
1: Therefore the law is holy
0: and just. Okay, therefore, in other words, here's my conclusion. The law is holy, the commandment is holy, and righteous. And what was the last word? Good? Good. That's the conclusion. The problem is not with the law. The law was not designed to sanctify. In fact, the law was not designed to sanctify Israel in the Old Testament. That's the mistake of the Pharisees. That's a distortion of the law. Connie.
3: But in a way, the law did signify the brand use of vocation is said. Yep, that was one thing. Yes, that has a
0: them right. But it earned no merit before God. Okay, and that's the point, Bill. So
2: then, how does a bigger view of the law, of just stepping back and for the world period, fit in with these? And I'm thinking specifically, Doctor Duvall. Christ is the end of the law for all who. Do. Yep, but for Jewish people and Gentiles,
0: yeah, we're getting there okay <laughs> we're moving in that direction Brush your fences. <laughs> All right. <laughs> have to hold both of you guys back a little bit, okay, antinomy. we're still with the confusion. we also have a misuse which in some cases is legalism, a misuse of the law. A lot of believers observe the Sabbath on a Sunday, on a Sunday. <laughs> so already they're bending the law. They're bending the law and they observe it on a Sunday.
2: Midnight. But
0: there are some, like Seventh-day Adventists, that observe the Sabbath on Shabbat, on on the Sabbath. But they still
2: Midnight. ignite a fire driving their car somebody with a spark and a combustion engine to get somewhere. Yep. Or they still heat their homes or cook them. Yep. But that's not...
0: That's, that's, yeah. <laughs> well, that's an interpretation of the law. Nine, yeah. or five or seven, yeah. Tithing, how many churches not only expect, but teach and advocate tithing? That's, that's from the law. There's nothing in the New Testament that supports the idea of tithing. In fact, if you want to tithe, you need to give everything. That's a New Testament standard. Not all. Yep. Okay. So your tithe is not complete unless you give all of it. So these are a misuse of the law. Now, some, and I, for lots of years, I used that as a guideline, but it was not something that was, uh, you know, something I had to check to please God. In fact, God is not pleased at all, necessarily. These are just examples that crop up amongst the body of Christ, even amongst evangelical Christians. And what Paul is dealing with is sanctification by law. That only leads to the two extremes that Maddie pointed out, either great frustration or pride, and what was the other word you used? I would say hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Okay, sanctification by the law. That's the issue he's dealing with here. We cannot be sanctified by the law. So what does Paul, what does he mean by not under law? I'm going to attempt to answer that, so you guys that ask the question, here it is. I think what he's talking about in this passage, and many others, in Galatians, for example, Second Corinthians and other passages where he uses the phrase, "Not under law. In fact, in this passage, look at so somebody read verse, I think it's 14, 6:14, 614,
2: 614. "For sin shall not be master over you." For you are not under law, but under grace.
0: Okay, you're not under law, but you're under grace. And then look at what he says in verses 5 and 6. Somebody read those two verses. Chapter,
1: six, seven,
0: chapter seven. 7. 7. 5, and 6. This is the passage immediately before the one that we're looking at. For
1: while we were in the flesh, our sinful passion aroused by the law were at work, but now we, have response, so that we are in the new and not in the new.
0: Okay, in some ways he's summarizing chapter, chapter 6. We died to the law and 6, what was it, 614, we're no longer under law, under grace. What does all that mean? Do we throw the law away? We said no, that's antinomianism. Do we try to observe the law in order to gain favor before God? No, that's legalism. What Paul is saying is that the law, there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is okay. Even today, there's value in the law. Not for sanctification, not for salvation, not for gaining any merit before God, but because it's inspired and because it is inerrant and because it has guidelines and it has usefulness. It is for instruction, it is useful today. And this includes the commandments of the New Testament. We can say there's New Testament law. In fact, that little phrase is used, the law of liberty in the New Testament. The law is not designed to sanctify. The law is a revelation of the standard, and therefore what Paul says, the use of the law is to condemn us. To show us how far short we fall in terms of God's standards. And it does give us some guidance in terms of what is correct living. In other words, what is pleasing to God. But we don't use it to earn anything from him. We use it as a means of a light, a path that God can give. So the balance that Paul gives here. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? And the emphatic answer is, may it never be. In other words, absolutely not. Or you might more uh, liberally, I guess, interpret it. Are you insane? In other words, this is a crazy idea. And then he goes, now he's going to give the purpose of the law, 7b through 8. On the contrary, the problem is not with the law. That's not the problem. So... Just to remind you, I'm not going to go into detail when, before we went to Israel, we went over all of these passages. We read them all. I'm just going to do a quick review of them. If you want them all, they're on the other sheet. In fact, the one I passed out last week, there's some extras over there that gives you the value of the law. And if you look at it from the Old Testament, Psalm 19, 7 through 9 is probably the strongest Statement in all of scripture on the inerrancy of scripture and inerrancy of the law. It is elevated by the writer, by Isaiah in Isaiah 40, 42, It's priceless. He takes the the psalmist takes the most expensive uh, <laughs> gold and silver and Jews. It's more priceless than anything that you can imagine. Psalm 119.72 as well. Psalm 19.10. It is purifying. This is a proper view of the law and not just an Old Testament view. This is the proper view of the law. It is comprehensive. It touches on every area of life. Deuteronomy 6. It's a blessing. The law is a blessing. God intended it as a blessing. It's good. Psalm 119 and. And these are just representative passages. There are several in Psalm 119, 14 through 18, verse 23. You can add others on there. It is remembered all the way to the end of the book, or the Old Testament, Malachi 4.4, The second to the last verse of the Old Testament speaks of the value of the law. So that's the value in the New Testament but by the new by the time of the new testament the law was made an idol and that's one of the problems that Jesus addresses in the new testament in the life of Christ law become externalized god designed it to deal with the internal as well so as long as you could meet the surface level of the law then in your mind you thought oh i'm okay as a jew that's pharisaism It also led to legalism in the first century, another issue that Christ addressed. Those are distortions of the law. But the law has great value from God's perspective and from a godly and a biblical perspective, as those other verses indicated. But the law is fulfilled in Christ. And Jesus confronted Jewish distortions and basically claimed in Matthew chapter 5, 17 and 18, he's the fulfillment of the law. The law became a yoke because they tried to use it to please God. And we looked at those verses. But Romans 6 and 7, we are living in a new dispensation. This is the key. The law, in fact, when we speak of new covenant, implies what? Old covenant. Old covenant is no longer applicable. That's Hebrews book of Hebrews as well. This is the whole point of the book of Hebrews, but it's also Romans 6 and 7. And what we mean is we are living in a different dispensation. If that word doesn't offend you, it's a good word. We're living in a different era, a different time frame. We're living in a time frame where God is dealing more by grace. Not that grace didn't exist in the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament is by grace as well. But he has set up a new era. We're not under law. We're not under the Mosaic Covenant. The Covenant is a legal document that was binding to Israel. Does that make sense? Israel was bound by and regulated by the law. The Mosaic Code, the Mosaic Law. But in the New Testament, we are not under that code. So does that mean we can murder? Does that mean we can steal? Does that mean we can commit adultery? No, because nine of the Ten Commandments are reissued in the New Testament. So we have commandments in the New Testament. But we don't use those commandments to earn merit before God. That's legalism. We use them because it's not good to murder. It's not good to steal. It's not good to commit adultery, etc., so they're guidelines and they're, they're revelation of God's standard that are still good today. But in terms of earning anything before God, that's not the design of the law. That's why we have the Holy Spirit to give us the power and we'll see that in Romans 8 to live out the law.
3: So I don't know going to say this, Bill, but Paul later speaks in Romans chapter 12 yes. that love is does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Yes, and so we live by love, and yes. that's what Jesus pulled out right from those 613 commands.
0: Yes, that yep. we are
3: to love God and love our
0: neighbor. Yeah, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we will obey the law. Now, some of the law has been set aside, some of those stipulations like Sabbath worship. But other aspects, particularly those that have more moral implications with them, are part of who, of what we observe in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's, That's Romans Jesus eight says Mm-hmm.
2: So yeah. just thinking, looking back at Theonopianism, it misses the context of the Mosaic covenant that it was given to the specific people, Israel yes, at yes. a specific time,
0: yeah. We have today let me ask you a question did the old testament saints have the power of the holy spirit like we have it today no. no we have something more than they had and that is the means by which we regulate or live the christian life in the power of the holy spirit did they did the old testament saints have the baptism of the holy spirit no no that's new that's radical That's totally unknown in the Old Testament. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. The law had its place and has its value and has its value today. But it's not intended and it's not for the purpose of sanctifying or gaining merit before God.
3: Law could not redeem. Could not redeem. Not sanctify. Mm -hmm. Could not glorify.
0: Was there regeneration in the Old Testament? Yes, Yes. there was regeneration, but it It was was, it was yeah, but it was not in the same way as we have more aspects to redemption in our culture
3: in terms of looking looking forward. Mm this idea. Right.
0: Abraham trusted. He God he was, yeah, I think David as, was fully regenerated as well as many others as well.
3: It was credited to him as righteousness, and that's Abraham as forward well. Forward to what right? Isaiah do.
1: Yep. So it wasn't in God's eyes; it was complete, but it wasn't. Yep. It now, it was, the, but it wasn't. Yep. Here's okay. so in the Book of Acts, chapter 15, 20, uh, 28. Yeah. Uh, this, Go ahead. This letter, it says, For it seemed good to uh, to the Holy Spirit to us, They have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit to us, remember, he's talking to Gentiles who became Christians, to lay on, uh, on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you'll do well, farewell. Yep. So, well, let's see now. Uh, What about eating pork? I don't see, it appears to me that if you want to eat pork, it's okay. Uh, and, uh, well, oh, so you've got to keep all the the Jewish holidays? Nope. those. Nope.
0: No, and what you have there is a list of only those things that would have been Very offensive Mm -hmm. to somebody that came out of a Jewish background.
3: Sexual immorality, though, is included in
0: that. Yeah, but that's part of the whole moral standard.
3: that's a moral
0: issue. And Paul is going to deal with some of that in Romans chapter 15, the weaker brother. And I think those are the things that are into that area. Except
3: for the same Anyway, like,
0: verse 7. I would not <coughs> have come to know sin except through the law. So there's a purpose for the law. We've already seen this. It's a revelation of God's nature, the law, which is applicable today. We can learn something of the nature of God from the law today. It's a revelation of God's standards. We can learn from the law what standards God has implemented, not to gain merit before him, but what those standards are. And what Paul is saying here is a revelation of sin. It reveals sin. Paul's going to use himself as an example. It also is the means that God used to maintain a relationship with himself. That's Old Testament. That's how Old Testament saints, or at least the nation of Israel, maintained a relationship with God is through the sacrificial system. And it was the rule of God. I'm using R as, as alliteration here. And this was what regulated the nation. We are not under that rule. The rule today is grace, not law. And as Maddie also pointed out, love, which is part of that aspect of grace. So what he's developing here is sin's sinfulness. He's distinguishing the rest of the passage, and I'm not going to get too far into it, but the rest of the passage now he's going to distinguish between sin and the law. The law is not sin, and what he's developing here is the sinfulness of sin. And he's going to begin in verse 5, sinful passions working using the law. Sinful passions working using the law, Romans 7, 5. And then seven, it makes us aware of sin. Law makes us aware of sin. But sin is the issue. Sin is the problem, not the law. And then the last part of verse seven, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet, uses a word that we've seen before already, epithumia. Do you remember that word? It has a neutral sense, probably Mark 419. We've already studied this word. It's used in a good sense. Luke 22:15. Jesus had some desires. Desires in and of themselves are not evil. The Apostle Paul and Philippians had some desires for the Philippian believers 123. but the majority of uses are in a negative sense. Lusts, sometimes it's translated lusts, Romans one twenty four, James 1.14-15, 1, 1 John 2.16-17. Sometimes evil desires, sinful desires, harmful desires, First Timothy 6.9. Lusts, often associated with sexual issues, but just in general, evil and sinful, harmful desires, First Timothy 6.9, 2 Timothy 4.3. And here in this context, coveting. And more specifically, we would define it as desiring things that are not rightfully ours and probably belonging to someone else, coveting. Same word, though. Same word. Epithumia.
3: Right. So it's the context that determines.
0: Context Context always determines meaning. Exactly. Desire. The desires of the sinful nature. You have epithumia in Galatians 5, 16 through 17. Just a variety of ways that word is used. You shall not covet. And he only quotes a part of the commandment, the central part, the issue at hand. And then he's going to expand and make that distinction, and this is probably a good place to stop. But sin, taking opportunity, notice the emphasis on sin, not the law, taking opportunity through the commandment, using what is good, what is holy what is righteous, sin distorts everything, even good things. And in this case, sin distorts a gift of God, the law, a holy commandment, as verse 12 tells us. Taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me, coveting of every kind. So once I'm aware of the standard now, Sin takes advantage of that and raises in me all these desires to do the very thing the law prohibits. For apart from the law, sin is dead. That make sense? So sin, sinfulness, sinful passions working, seven five seven eight. sin produces coveting. Not the law, sin. And he will expand that in verses 9 through 11, and then it will lead us to verse 12. Who wants to close for us? Go ahead. Heavenly Father, thank you for studying. Thank you for the provision that you've given us. We cannot comprehend only what you've done, but we just praise you,
2: Lord, that we are saved by grace for you. That is what our hope is. We pray that we can live this out. We pray that we that the whole confusion of how we intermingle the law and our thoughts and pleasing you, that we can please you by its by living out in the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. We pray to be with us as Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.